You know, there are often words in other languages whose impact is missed when they are rendered in a single English word. Their meaning gets kind of lost in translation. One such word, sobra mesa, is a word that I really like because it's fun to say, but also because of what it describes. Something that I love and one of life's richest experiences and what I think of as one of the most evocative kind of at-hand experiences that picture eternity. The literal translation of sobra mesa is tabletop. Its meaning, though, is far richer. Sobra mesa refers to the beautiful and warm time spent around the table after a meal, just experiencing joy and laughter with people that you love. It's a good word. There's another one I really like, uh, a close college friend of our middle son and daughter-in-law who has become dear to our entire family. Grew up with her father calling her his little pochamuchka. Pochamuchka is a Russian word that translates literally to why person. Its meaning, however, is far richer. It's more like a phrase, an endearing term used by parents to describe a child who never stops asking questions. Have you ever known one of those? <laughs> And if you ever meet Danielle, you'll know that it's a word that fits her pretty perfectly. You know, there are words in other languages that bring richness and texture and nuance and insight that no single English word can adequately convey. We ask a lot of English words to bear a lot of weight. And something gets lost sometimes in the way that we understand them. But this is exactly what we find as a central component in the first part of the gospel reading appointed for today. Greek words that Jesus uses, or that Matthew uses, to mark the character of the inner life when it is as it ought to be. Not a, a checklist of behaviors, which we can often think when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, but the kind of heart that was the misunderstood goal of the law from the very beginning, the kind of heart that, to quote from Micah 6.8, which we read two weeks ago, naturally does justice and loves mercy and walks humbly with their God. We're going to spend today looking at Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 through 26 specifically. So if you've got your Bible or your, your device, you can turn there. Jesus knew. Dallas Willard, I, I love, he, he refers to Jesus as the master of those who know. And he understood life at a molecular level. He could turn water into wine. He could raise the dead. I mean, he knew. And Jesus knew that as important as the law of the old covenant was, he came after all, he came after all to, not to abolish it. He says this right here in this sermon, but to fulfill it, as it says in Romans 8, every one of its demands. He knew that humans simply could not keep the law by straining to keep the law. A character of right doing requires an inner life of right being. 
Like an apple tree doesn't have to strain to produce apples. It naturally produces them because of its inner nature. Our aim then must to become the kind of must be to become the kind of person for whom the deeds of righteousness naturally flow. And this is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the most crucial thing to remember when we look at this sermon. Otherwise, what Jesus teaches here, while sounding nice and moral, will ultimately frustrate us. It's a pretty high bar. This sermon, though, is, after all, a sermon. It is practical teaching given to regular folk. We know that from its context. It's neither an esoteric discourse of sublime irrelevance nor a treatise of aspirational but mostly unattainable and certainly unsustainable moralism. It's meant to be metabolized in us, to be lived out. And herein lies the fundamental mistake of legalists. In Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They focused on the actions that the law requires, but the inner dimensions of their personality, their heart, their character were neglected and left to remain contrary to God's desires. As Jesus said, they were great at washing the outside of the cup while neglecting the inside. And that kind of heart will always eventually win over the conscious intentions, no matter how deep our resolve. Because we will, in fact, ultimately and naturally follow the desires and contents of our hearts. Have you ever had someone apologize for something hurtful they said or did by saying, I have no idea where that came from? Jesus did. He knew that words and actions never emerge from nothing. They simply and faithfully reveal what's in the heart. That's why he said in Luke 6.45, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if we're to be transformed, which is Jesus's goal here, our inner life, our heart has to be our aim. It's only from that that right behaviors can naturally flow. Consistent right action is a byproduct of a heart that's been made right. It doesn't work in reverse, and it never has. If we don't understand this, we'll likely just give up on the Sermon on the Mount as basically impossible. Almost right from the beginning where Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the heavens. It's a harsh statement. But it's the Greek word dikiosune, normally rendered as a single word righteousness. But that's incomplete. The best translation of this word is more like a phrase, something like what it is about a person that makes him really right or good. To tighten it up, we might say true inner goodness. 
this initial statement about righteousness then flows into Jesus describing what true inner goodness looks like in relation to the law, the kind of heart that feels at home in the kingdom of the heavens. Which brings me back briefly to my point that this is, in fact, a sermon. It's cohesive. It's not just a random collection of sayings that don't really have much to do with reality or each other. It has a very particular order, which Jesus chose, and that order really matters. The problem is, we most of the time treat the, the Sermon on the Mount more like it's a bag of marbles. And we, we take one out and look at it and then put it back, and then we take another marble out and we look at it and put it back. But the reality is that Jesus, what, is that what Jesus had to say about human good and evil was cohesive. It makes sense, and it has a progression. And it is, a, it is a, of enough depth, power, and justification to dominate the Western world for over two millennia. In fact, no one has the vaguest idea, no matter what they might say, no one has the vaguest idea of what the Western world will mean apart from the life and teaching of Jesus. It is simply the most important thing that we have. So when he deals with moral evil and goodness in his sermon, he doesn't start by theorizing or philosophizing. He gets into the nasty guts of human existence. Cultivated anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and begging. It's the stuff of real life. He takes a concrete approach because his aim is to enable people to be good, not just to theorize about it. As our creator, Jesus actually knows how to do this, and he brings his knowledge to bear on life as it really is, not some intellectualized, philosophized, or theoretical version of it. Which explains why when Jesus is addressing what it is about a person that makes him really, him or her, really good or right, he starts in verse 22 with anger. Because if your aim is to transform people, you have to start there. Anger may be the most fundamental problem in human life. Which means if the marble you pop out of the bag is the paragraph that begins in verse 38, for example, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. It will seem to you unless you have dealt with anger and contempt it will seem to you ridiculous or impossible unless you've dealt with those things first you simply won't be able to do it as an aside for those of us for whom according to typologies like disc Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram anger is one of your primary emotions this is especially important Everyone gets angry, but we, I'm one of those people. We can get there faster and stay there longer. 
So this is an academic. I know this from firsthand, from a lifetime of experience, so this is for me. The first illustration from Jesus is drawn from the times we're displeased with someone and choose to treat them with anger. Close behind anger, then, is its sibling, contempt. And it's the elimination of these things that he presents as the first and fundamental step toward the rightness of the kingdom heart. We simply cannot neglect them. Pointing to the moral inadequacy of the commandment simply to not murder as a guide to relationships with others who anger us, Jesus goes far deeper into the texture of human personality. In chapter 5, verse 22, he says, You've heard that it was said of, uh, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be li liable to judgment. In its simplest form, anger is a spontaneous response that has a vital function in life. And as such, isn't objectively wrong. In fact, occasionally anger can produce very positive results. We get angry at injustice and we fix it. The basic anger is a feeling that unplanned immediately can grab us even if we never act on it. We are, after all, human. But the dangerous fact is, and why Ephesians 4.26 tells us to put away anger quickly, is that anger itself wounds, even apart from any action that it might produce. You know this experientially, and so do I. If you found out that I was angry at you and had been for some time, you'd probably immediately be hurt, if not angry with me in response. Anger itself evokes hurt and anger in others. Why? Because baked into anger is a readiness to harm. There's an inclination to hurtful or destructive action wrapped up in the emotion itself. You can see this even in anger toward inanimate objects. Have you ever <laughs> wanted to throw your $1,000 smartphone against the wall? When frustration and anger flare, your first impulse is to destroy the object that inflicted it. That, by the way, is super self-defeating. The point is, baked into anger is a desire to harm. And why anger itself is so often hurts others. In fact, some of the best mentoring experience or advice that Lauren ever, that Lauren and I, I love that Lauren ever got, I was going to say. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I, that was not throwing you under the bus. But Lauren and I ever got was to withhold discipline from our children while we were angry. Don't discipline while you're angry. But even though it's better avoided where possible, basic anger isn't morally wrong. It is possible, according to St. Paul, to be angry and not sin. This is because if we let go quickly of anger, it would blow over and interpersonal damage would be minimal. You could think of such basic and natural anger as anger the sun doesn't go down on. It's not there long enough for the sunset to catch it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about and why his teaching begins a step beyond anger. 
our translation says whoever is angry, but the Greek insists on something deeper, rendering the single word anger as incomplete. Or gizomenos in Greek is only used one time in the New Testament here. And it's a present participle, a word that has an incredibly strong durative property. In other words, it's ongoing, it's retained, it's cultivated. Thus, Jesus begins here, not with simple spontaneous anger, but with anger that I choose to hold on to, to stoke, and to keep fresh and ready to use. This anger isn't something that happens to me unbidden. This anger is something I do. This sort of anger is something I choose. And it is a delicious choice. Because man... Does it feel good sometimes to indulge anger? Though only in the short term. All sin feels good for a season. It will eventually corrupt us and destroy us. The next step then beyond cultivated anger is contempt, which Jesus presents as a natural progression. See what he's doing here? First you go here, then you go here. In this translation, verse 22 says, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, which is somewhat unfortunate because the word rendered insult is raka, which is basically untranslatable in English primarily because it's a sound more than it's a word. It mimics the sound a person makes when hawking up a loogie to spit in someone else's face. Lugi is a funny word, but this is deadly serious. Fundamentally, racha is a sign of contempt. We might think of it today more like an eye roll. In fact, the people at the Gottman Institute, just one of the, the, the most successful marriage counseling firms in the world, says that they can predict within 10 minutes in a conversation if a couple will be divorced in 10 years by whether or not one of them rolls their eyes while the other one is talking. It's, part, they're one, of, it's one of the four horsemen, what they call the four, and they're not Christians, but they call it the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Contempt is more damaging than even anger, and thus more severely culpable than, than anger, because contempt depersonalizes in a way that anger does not. In anger, I may want to hurt you, but in contempt, I don't care whether you're hurt or not. You're not really worth consideration one way or the other. We can be angry at someone without denying their worth, but contempt makes it much easier for us to hurt them or to really enjoy seeing them hurt in some way. The third step Jesus traces within the human heart then is the fusion of anger and contempt. Verse 22, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of Gehenna. You fool, said with the, the characteristic combination of freezing contempt and withering anger that Jesus is, is what Jesus had in mind. It's de a deeper harm than either anger or contempt alone. Fool, in the biblical sense, is an expression of malice as well as contempt. Our word fool, however, doesn't really come close to capturing what Jesus is saying here. 
Please excuse the crudity, but the nearest equivalent of biblical fool in today's language be something more akin to stupid bastard or effing idiot. As said to someone who either just messed up something important to us or has just cut us off in traffic. It's the verbal equivalent of flipping someone off. To brand someone fool in the biblical sense was a violation of the soul of such great harm that as Jesus saw it, it would justify consigning the offender to the smoldering garbage heap of human existence. Gehenna, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It combines everything that's evil in cultivated anger and contempt. And it's not possible for people with such attitudes toward others to live in the movements of God's kingdom because their hearts are simply at disharmony with it. So what's Jesus' way beyond a life of anger and contempt. In verses 23 through 26, he offers two illustrations of how a kingdom heart might look in motion. Don't imagine these as new laws or how-tos, but rather as unadorned examples intended to evoke a question. What kind of person would do that? Imagining the answer to that question is, I believe, the point of the illustrations. In the first illustration, verses 23 and 24, you're, you're presenting an offering at the altar, an act of reconciliation with God, and you remember that a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker holds something against you. The orientation here is important. They're holding something against you. They're the ones holding on to anger, not you. A person with this kind of heart would leave their sacrifice at the altar, seek out this person with whom to be reconciled, and then return to complete reconciliation with God. What kind of a person would do that? Well, minimally, minimally this would be a person who considers reconciliation with his neighbor necessary to reconciliation with God. This is one of the theological reasons, by the way, that we offer each other the peace on Sunday morning after we have confessed our sins and been absolved, been reminded of God's absolution of them. It's not a meet and greet. It's not a cocktail hour. It is not, um, you know, a, a break in the action before we take communion. It is to express reconciliation with each other as we are reconciled to God or to go to a person and reconcile with them. Moreover, this person who would do that, who would leave their sacrifice, must have a full and just majestic vision of human worth, enough that he would actually grieve over the ruinous damage anger would cause his neighbor's soul. And that would be a different kind of person. In the second illustration, Verses 25 and 26, you're, you're being sued. Nonetheless, on the way to court, you interact with the person suing you in a kind or well-disposed way. That's the language that Jesus uses. To try with genuine love for the adversary to resolve the matter before it comes to trial. That's the kind of thing a kingdom heart does. 
it's crucial to realize that Jesus doesn't say that we shouldn't go to court or simply acquiesce to the demands of an adversary. Kindness towards an adversary or anyone else doesn't mean doing what they demand. It means to be genuinely committed to what's good for them, to seek their flourishing. This may even require that we not give in to them, though there are lots of ways of holding that line, some of God and some not. He doesn't tell us what to do, but rather how to do it. Go to court or not, as is wise given the circumstances. But whatever you do, do it without hostility, bitterness, and the merciless drive to win. Be prepared to sacrifice your interest for that of another if that seems wise. And keep a joyous confidence in God regardless of what happens. What kind of a person would do that? Minimally, this would be a person who carries in her heart a readiness to forgive. And in fact, the inclination to forgive now fills the heart space once occupied by cultivated anger and ready contempt. This is a person who naturally does justice, loves kindness, and walks humbly with their God. And that would be a different kind of person. These two illustrations place kingdom goodness side by side with the mere goodness of not murdering, which then looks silly almost in contrast. But even if we made laws of these illustrations and followed them, would that ensure that we are right towards our brothers or sisters? Nope. We could do the things here and still find many other ways to hate and hurt our neighbor. We'd miss the whole point, which is this. The kind of life Jesus is describing is a real possibility for everyday believers like you and me. Life in the kingdom of the heavens is actually available to us. It is at hand. But suppose... The Sermon on the Mount stopped here and got only as far as cultivated anger and contempt, which is as far as I'm going to get today. I'm going to let Steve take the rest on um, next week. So, <laughs> you're welcome. <sighs> what if it stopped right there with anger and contempt? Do you think that would make a difference? I mean, if you took not caring if another is harmed, contempt, out of pornography, for example, how much pornography would you have left? Almost none, if any. Because pornography is built on a foundation of contempt. It's perfectly designed to degrade others and to see others degraded. Adultery is right there, too. In the next paragraph, Jesus gets at sexuality and the degrading nature of the cultivation of lust. But if you haven't dealt with anger or contempt, you'll see what Jesus says as aspirational, but not practical. And divorce. Remove cultivated anger and contempt from marriages, and what happens to divorce? It would be much more rare, I guarantee you. Hopefully we can see, when we're looking at this, when we begin invited into a partnership 
just just the incredible privilege of being invited into a partnership with the Holy Spirit. Emptying ourselves of cultivated anger and contempt, it can change the game. And I believe we will find vastly different inclinations filling our hearts and minds. And we will fail. And we will never do it perfectly. And because it's his nature, Jesus is happy to be with us, even in those times. Offering unlimited grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I don't want to mislead you. It will take concerted effort. But, I mean, that's at the heart of anything that's meaningful, right? Anything that's worthwhile. Maybe begin by just examining yourself. Am I quick to anger? You guys, this is why one of my exercises at Lent every year is always driving in the farthest right lane on the highway and always getting into the longest line at the grocery store which means I never drive on the highway and I never go to the grocery store. <laughs> During that, no, that would be being a Pharisee, wouldn't it? That would be avoiding. Am I quick to anger? Ask yourself that. And if you're an advanced, if you're, if you're an advanced person in this regard, ask your spouse or someone close to you, do you see cultivated anger or contempt in me? As I said, effort. <laughs> but grace, grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Amen. <laughs>